0: Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that your Holy Spirit would allow us, enable us to rightly understand your word and not only to understand it, but to know it and not just to know it, but to apply it in order that you would be glorified as we desire to be obedient to you and to your word, for your glory. Amen. So we are going to be in Second John today. If you have your Bible with you, turn to 2 John. You'll find uh, the book of Second John located between the books of 1 John and 3 John. Just so you know. Don't want anybody to be confused right off the bat. Imagine for a moment that you are in the process of buying what you consider to be your dream house. And of course, if you've ever bought a house before, if you've ever done a, a real estate exchange, you know that one of the final steps in buying a house is to have an inspection. And so the day for the inspector comes, and you would ask this inspector to pay particular attention to a crack, that you noticed on the west side of the house. So he completes his inspection of the house. It passes with flying colors. The bank approves your loan and you are the owner of this house, your dream house. Fast forward one year. That crack that you noticed has grown and it's become evident in less than a year that the west side of your house is sinking. And so you hire somebody to come out and take a look at it, and they tell you that the foundation of your house is rotten, that it's crumbling, that it's not going to last, that it's only a matter of time before the side of your house falls off. And so what do you do? Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing I think I would do is I would call the guy who inspected my house a year ago, and as calmly as you can, you, you tell him what you've learned And he says, let's just imagine, he says to you, I know, I I saw the problem. At that point, I don't know how calm you could remain, uh, but you want to know, why didn't you tell me that there was this problem? Why didn't you tell me that there was this foundational issue? And let's just say his answer is, well, you know, I I saw how excited you were to buy that house, and it's a beautiful house, and I, I, I just wanted you to be happy and telling you that there was something wrong would have ruined the whole deal. And I just wanted you to have a safe space where you'd feel happy and accepted. Who among us wouldn't be livid? Absolutely furious. You know, we, we, we hired an inspector. You would hire an inspector to tell us the truth about the house, not to feed or, or protect our egos or to protect our feelings from being hurt if there's a problem. You see, when something is important to us, it's very important that we know the truth about what it is. The more important something is, the more important it is to know the truth. And when something is important to us, we want the truth more than we want the illusion of comfort, the illusion of assurance or you know, a fleeting moment of happiness. And yet there is a temptation for churches, and for Christians to compromise the truth and to create an illusion of assurance for the sake of not offending people with the truth. But the temptation swings the other way too, we should note. To become so preoccupied with truth that you neglect the importance of love. Today we're going to be studying an entire book of the Bible, if you can believe that, Second John, and that shouldn't be too much of a problem to get through the whole book because it is actually the second shortest book in the entire Bible. It's the only one uh, that's shorter than, or the only one that's shorter is Third John, which uh, I, I suppose we're bound to cover sooner or later. While the book of 1 John was a full-length letter, you might liken that to an email, and you might liken this in comparison to a text message. It's very, very brief. It's very succinct. The book was written by John, the apostle, from the city of Ephesus, most likely between the time of 80 to 95 AD, roughly, uh, the 3rd century Church historian Eusebius. Eusebius seems to have suggested that both 2nd and 3rd John were written after John was released from exile on Patmos Island where he wrote the book of Revelation. And if that is indeed the case, then 2nd and 3rd John were the last books of the Bible, the last books of the New Testament to be written. And given that the books are arranged in order of their length, in order of how, how big they are, then it's entirely possible that the book of 2nd John was actually written after 1st and 3rd John, making it the last book of the Bible to be written. It's possible. We know quite a bit about the church church in Ephesus, which is where John ministered, based on what's revealed in scripture, listen very closely to what the Lord Jesus had to say to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He said this to the church in Ephesus. He said, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I don't know about you, but what I gather from the first part of that, uh, of that rebuke Uh, of that, that, that statement from the Lord to the church in Ephesus, but it is very obvious there that this was a church that knew and loved the truth. They were a doctrinally sound church. You would not find false teaching in their church, and if a false teacher came their way, man, they would show them the door. No problem. They walked in the truth. They loved the truth. They knew the truth. They were very good at discerning what was false. And this is probably where John himself was when he wrote this letter. He was a discerning person. But this church in Ephesus was far from being a perfect church because Jesus tells us that they lacked the love that they had at first You see, there's a balance that we as children of God who have been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, there's this balance that we must maintain. It is erroneous to love so much that we compromise the truth and it's also erroneous to be so committed to the truth that we forget to love or we don't love as we should. If you sacrifice love at the altar of truth, what do you sound like? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 13.1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's what happens when you put truth aside for the sake of love. If you sacrifice love at the altar of truth, your words will be powerless. However, if you sacrifice truth at the altar of love, you destroy them both you lose both truth and love. Love compels us to tell the truth, even when it hurts. True Christian love, agape love, if you will, must always be expressed in the context of truth, and Christian truth must always be expressed in the context of love, agape love. Now, some within the camp of Reformed theology, especially, seem to be convinced that if you just speak the truth, however bluntly, with however much offense there may be in it, and quote some scripture, the word of God is going to do the work of God. But nowhere does scripture say or even imply that we can be careless or thoughtless with our words. Instead, Paul encourages us to speak the truth in love. In Ephesians 4.15, he says to the Galatians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's from Galatians 6.1. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. God's word does indeed do God's work, but we nevertheless do have the obligation to, to be a people who season our speech with grace and humility. Yes, we are to speak the truth, but we must understand that the gospel is offensive enough. We don't need to add to it. This is the overall theme of the book of 2 John. Maintaining this balance, as difficult as it is, between love and truth. So let's look at the first couple verses together, shall we? Verses one and two. John writes, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now there are actually a few different views on on who this letter is written to. Uh, some would say that the term elect lady refers to a local church, a local congregation, and her children in that case would refer to the, the members of that congregation, the members of that church, and that's, that's entirely possible. However, I take this, this phrase, this term, elect lady, to be a literal woman, a literal Christian woman, because nowhere in Scripture is a local church referred to as elect lady. Although it's a given that this could be the one place in all of Scripture where the church, where a local church is referred to that way. So that's, that's possible too. Either way, the principles of this letter are the same. And typical of John's writing style, he's so graceful. He's so graceful. He's so endearing in his tone with this woman. And the first thing he tells her is that he loves her, agape. He, he loves her and her children. And not only that he loves them, not only he loves them, but he loves them in truth. He loves them in truth. The Greek word that he's using here is agape. And remember that there are four distinct types of love in the Greek language, each with a distinct meaning. Agape love is selfless love for the benefit of others. Selfless love for the benefit of others. That's also the type of love that we are instructed to have for our neighbor. It's selfless, it is sacrificial, but... It doesn't compromise on the truth. So Paul says in the famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says in verse six that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It doesn't rejoice over sin. It doesn't rejoice over rebellion. It doesn't rejoice over anything that God forbids us from doing, but it rejoices with the truth the world says this is what love is you applaud my sin that is the world's definition of love and so they say if you don't applaud my sin then you hate me have we not heard that have we not heard that over and over and over again but with the biblical understanding of love in mind we must understand that when we applaud another's sin, we are actually expressing hatred toward the the person whose sin we applaud. If we're applauding sin, we're expressing hatred toward that person. John loves this elect lady and her children with this type of self-sacrificial love. And he says that he's not the only one who loves her and who loves her children. The same can be said of everyone who knows the truth. The truth about what? I mean, what's he talking about here? He's saying all Christians have agape love toward her. The phrase all who know the truth refers to all who are in the truth, all who are in Christ. The first thing that we see right off the bat in this very brief letter is the incredible manner in which common saving faith in Jesus Christ unites all believers everywhere. It unites believers everywhere. That's the first thing that the truth does. In 1 John, we read in chapter 2, verse 10, he said, "...whoever loves his brother abides in the light." He goes on to say in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Writing about the importance of obedience to Christ, he goes on to say in verse 23 of chapter 3, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So the first truth that we see, the first principle that we gather here is that we are united in salvation in Christ. We are united by this truth. The truth unites, but we must remember that the truth also divides. It unites and it divides. Because we know the truth, we are united together, and yet we are divided from those who do not. Because of salvation in Christ, you are more united with any believer in the world than you are with a blood relative who's an unbeliever. The unity that we have in Christ is so great, in fact. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you have Siamese twins. One is a non believer, one is a believer. And the believer would be more united with the body of Christ than he would be with the body of his twin. And that might seem like kind of a silly illustration, but that is the truth that Scripture reveals unto us. We are one. We are united in Christ Jesus, united in his salvation. But we must also remember that salvation requires correct belief in some very specific truths. And for that reason, it's very important that we proclaim the truth without compromise. And yet, that we do so with grace. To compromise the truth is not acceptable. To compromise the truth is to walk in disobedience. Love for one another and love for our neighbor does not and cannot entail the minimizing Of the truth of the gospel message. We're united by the truth because, John tells us here, the truth dwells within us. That's the second principle. Right off the bat, we're united by truth and the truth dwells within us. We know the truth, we live by the truth, the truth has set us free. And the truth abides in us, it dwells within us. And this should remind us of what John said in his first letter, First John chapter two, verses twenty to twenty one, where he wrote, "But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it." And he goes on to say in verse twenty seven he says, "His anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you." Abide in Him. So there are truths that every Christian affirms. Not because we're intellectually smart, but because the Holy Spirit has seen to it that we learned and embraced these truths. The truth unites us. The truth abides in us forever. The third principle here from verse 3, it blesses those who are in the truth and in whom the truth abides. Look at verse 3 with me. John says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. In truth and love. Now you might say that the truth of the gospel which unites and abides in Christians is never alone. It's never isolated. That is the source of, Of truth is also the source of grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is defined as getting something that you don't deserve. You don't deserve something, you get it anyway, that's grace. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We blew through a stoplight. And a police officer pulls us over and he says, what what was going on there? And you say, I didn't, I I guess I was just paying attention to the car in front of me who went through the stoplight too. And he lets you go with just a warning. That's mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And peace is the absence of hostility. And in this context, it is peace with God. And it is also peace with the brethren, peace with fellow Christians. And if you think about it, there's actually kind of a logical progression in this sequence of grace, mercy, and peace. It is by God's grace that he has granted us mercy, which results in peace with him and with his people. These are all wonderful benefits that are given in abundance to those who have been set free by the truth of the gospel. And who does John tell us? provides or grants or gives these things. John tells us that the God the Father and Jesus Christ give these things. And I think the reason that he he words it this way is to to uh, emphasize the equality between the Father and Christ. He's em- emphasizing the equality between them. I do think that's both significant and intentional. So truth unites Believers, it abides within believers, it blesses believers, and it compels believers unto obedience. Look at verse 4 with me. John says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. I have no doubt that John was a man who loved the truth. He loved the truth. All legitimate believers love and abide in the truth. And because of this passion for the truth, this zeal for the truth, John tells us that he rejoiced greatly. He didn't just rejoice. He rejoiced greatly to find that some of this elect lady's children were walking in the truth. What does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, in biblical language, to walk just means Uh, to live. It's a metaphor for living. You see, the gospel has to be more than just something we've got up here and keep up here. It has to be more than just head knowledge for us. By head knowledge, I mean, you know, it's got to be something that, you know, more than we just, you know, kind of know it and don't do anything with it, but we know it kind of like, you know, a, a secret recipe that you never use to cook something. It's not like that. It's not not something that we just give intellectual assent to. It must also be heart knowledge. That is, it's meant to be a truth that's lived out, a truth that affects our lives in tangible, observable, and practical ways. See, it's not enough to just talk the talk, so to speak. We must both talk the talk and walk the walk. And we don't do this in order to be saved. We do it because we are saved. We do it because we are new creations in Christ. And of course, this doesn't mean that we're gonna be perfectly sinless by any means. What it means is that our affections, our desires, the things that we enjoy, the things that we love and cherish will be changed. The longer we live the Christian life, the more our lives should be controlled and compelled by the truth. It compels us to desire to walk in obedience before the Lord. Because there should be a strong and growing desire within us to live lives that are pleasing and glorifying unto God. John tells us that walking in the truth, that is, living in accordance with the truth of the gospel, was commanded by the Father. Now, don't, don't get thrown for a loop here by trying to figure out exactly which command John is referring to. He's referring to all of them. He's referring to all of the commands that God gave with the implication that we must obey them. Jesus said, John fifteen eleven if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He didn't say, if you idealize the notion of adhering loosely to my commandments, you'll abide in my love. That's not what he said. He didn't even say, if you try to keep my commands, you'll abide in my love. He said, if you keep my commandments, that is the conditional clause. The idea there, of course there's grace. Of course, we're not going to do it perfectly, but the idea there is that obedience to God, obedience to the commands that he gives us through his word, isn't optional. It's not something that we can treat casually. The principle here is that we act in accordance with what we truly believe, that we are compelled by the truth that we believe. The person who doesn't believe that they have a great need for God day in and day out will not often come to God in prayer, most likely. They probably will not come often to his word, seeking to behold a deeper sense of his glory. They may not even see much of a need for going to church where they can hear the word of God taught and be held accountable to other believers. There are consequences for having a low view of God and a high view of self. Prayer, studying scripture, going to church, meditating on the word of God. These are all channels of grace that the scriptures, that God has has told us through the scriptures, either strongly encourage or command us to follow. The question is do we obey? That's what we must ask ourselves. Does the truth that you believe compel you unto obedience? Because how we live is a reflection of what we truly believe. And just as believing truth holistically, that is not just with our minds or our intellect, but also with our hearts and all of our beings, just as believing the truth with, with everything that we have will result in right action, wrong belief will also have an adverse effect. It will result in wrong action. So we must examine our beliefs. We must examine our lives. Compare these things to the obedient life that scripture repeatedly admonishes us to live. And then ask yourself, how do I measure up? Do you love the truth Are you walking in humble obedience to the precepts of the Scripture? Does the truth of the gospel compel you unto obedience? Truth unites believers. Truth abides within believers. Truth abundantly blesses believers. And it compels believers to walk, to live in obedience unto God. This is the foundation. Four four principles This is the foundation for the rest of the letter. John uses the word truth five times in these first four verses. He's established a strong theme, a strong theme of truth and love. The point that we're supposed to see here is that the truth matters. The truth really does matter, and that the acceptance and the adherence So the truth of the gospel is the basis, it's the only basis for our unity with one another and for our unity with Christ. So to summarize the the foundation of this brief letter, one, one commentator writes that it, quote, it is to maintain a healthy and growing community, the church must exhibit a fidelity to the truth that knows no compromise, and they must love one another in a way that knows no boundaries. End quote. Now, as we move forward, watch what John does here. He takes this wonderful thing that he rejoices over. If you remember back in the previous verse, he says he rejoices over the fact that this elect lady's children were, were bearing good fruit. They were walking in the truth. They were walking in obedience to the Lord. And he takes this principle and he applies it to us. Look at what he writes in verses five and six. He says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one We have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John brings her back to what he refers to as a command that Christians have had from the beginning. That command being that we love one another. This command. That we had from the beginning that he's referring to refers to the command of Jesus when he said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Again, this is agape. And he continues saying, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Anytime you see something repeated three times in Scripture, That's like underlining it, putting it all in in caps, making sure that we don't miss it. This is the factor. This is the factor that sets true believers apart from false converts. They love God's people. See, the world hates God's people. Jesus warned us that they would. And so when somebody loves God's people, it is literally supernatural evidence of their salvation. Now this is great. I love what John does here. He defines his terms. I love it when the biblical authors define their terms. You might say, I love my fellow man, and the way that I express my love for my fellow man is by never chastising him. He doesn't want to be judged, so I don't judge him. I don't judge his actions. Or I love my fellow man by encouraging him to follow the inclinations of his heart. Ay ay. ay We hear that so often, and John would tell us that you have a false idea of what love is if that's what you consider to be love. John tells us this is love, that we walk according to his commands. You demonstrate legitimate faith and legitimate love for God and for your brothers and sisters in Christ by practicing obedience unto God. That's what he says. Did you catch that? We demonstrate love for the brethren by practicing obedience to God. He says, let us love one another. What is love? Love is walking in obedience to God's commands. How do we express love toward one another? Not by sinning, but by walking in obedience. I think the implication there is that we're not going to be a stumbling block for somebody else. If you're walking in sin, if you're walking in disobedience amongst your brethren there's a very strong chance that somebody some young believer who maybe just doesn't know better sees what you're doing and says well that must be acceptable and so it is not love to walk in disobedience and thereby give an example for somebody who doesn't know better yet to follow Putting verses 5 and 6 together gives us the idea that if we love one another, we will live in harmony with one another because we're living in obedience unto God by the commands that God has given in his word. So walk in the command to love. Live it out. Practice it tangibly, observably, empirically, and love the commandments that we were instructed to to walk in. This is what it means for this elect lady and for us to walk in the truth. Love God, love one another, walk in obedience unto the Lord. These three things are inseparable. You cannot walk in obedience unto the Lord if you don't love God and if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And why do we have to do these things? Why must we do these things? John answers that as he continues. Look at verses 7 through 11 with me. He says, for, And again, whenever you see the word for, it reflects back. It's answering a question. In this case, why do we have to do this? For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. "'Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. "'Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, "'but may win a full reward. "'Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ "'does not have God. "'Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son.'" If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. There's a very stern warning there. How desperately the modern church needs to hear and understand and apply these words. There are Many, many deceivers, false teachers abound, and the church, generally speaking, does little to nothing to confront or expose them. Maybe that's because they hold the notion that it's either unloving or just unnecessary to put, uh, you know, false teachers on full blast mode, so to speak, you know, in, in public. But the biblical authors held no such ideology. Rather, Paul, writing to the Romans, he says this, Romans sixteen seventeen. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now, somebody might read that and say, well, okay, I, I agree with that. We should avoid false teachers. We should avoid somebody who would would try to pull us away from the truth. We should watch out for those who teach false doctrine. But does this mean that we should blatantly and intentionally expose them in a public manner? This is something that we actually see happening several times in the New Testament. To answer the question or the objection, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them expose them. And how does he do that? Throughout his letters. Does he ever do that? Yes. He drops names. He names names of false teachers. In fact, he warns Timothy of specific people who were teaching false doctrine. He mentions these false teachers by name warning Timothy of these people. And John does the same thing in the book of third John. They drop names. They name names. They expose false teachers by name, publicly. One type of deceiver is the person who holds an unorthodox, that is, untraditional, a false, an unbiblical, a heretical view of Christ. To affirm the truth of Christ is to affirm Christ, to deny the truth about Christ is to deny Christ. And John has a label for that type of person, a person a a label that that I certainly don't want, and a label that I, I would hate to see on anyone I know as well. The Antichrist. The Antichrist. Having a proper understanding of Christ is this important. It's essential to Christianity to have a proper understanding of who Christ is. In theological terms, we call it a Christology, a study of Christ. It is imperative that we know who he is and what he has done, and that we affirm these things and truly believe them, not just in our minds, but also in our hearts, thereby being demonstrated in our actions. And that's why John strongly, emphatically warns this elect lady and her children who are walking in the truth. He says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. There are innumerable false views of Christ out there. And salvation and eternity hang in the balance as salvation and eternity hinge on a correct understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. How do you know if you have a true understanding of Christ? That's a good question. You search the scriptures. You search the scriptures, and when you do, you'll probably reach the same conclusions that the people who wrote the Nicene Creed reached. There was a lot of controversy in the early church about who Christ was. There were a lot of false teachers. And so the church came together and they said, look, there are all these false teachers out there. We have to have a defining statement of who Christ is and we'll pass it out among the, the, the true churches so that we know, you know, if anybody violates any of these things, we'll know that they're teaching something false. And so what they did is they searched the scriptures and they came up with the Nicene Creed, which is a very good summarization of all that is essential about Christ. And yeah, I understand the Nicene Creed itself is not inspired by God as scripture is, but It summarizes the inescapable and the essential truths of Christ that are revealed in Scripture. The Nicene Creed reads as follows. The introduction is about the Father, but the Father wasn't really the subject of the debate. Christ was. So they give a brief statement about the Father. They say, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Now they move on to Christ, and this is is lengthy. They say, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And they go on to talk about the Holy Spirit but we're talking about Christ here, so we'll just we'll stop there. This is the Jesus that the Scriptures describe for us. This is the Jesus that the Scripture attests to. This is the Jesus who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. This is the Jesus that Peter was referring to when he said, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. This is the Jesus in whom you must place saving faith in order to be reconciled unto God. If your idea of Jesus doesn't line up with this, you have a false view of who Jesus is. We must walk In the truth. Because many deceivers have gone out. And listen, they aren't just evangelizing the lost. They are evangelizing the lost, but they're proselytizing Christians too, or at least they're trying to. And what does John say to do with such a person? Should we welcome them into our midst, into our congregation? Should we give them the pulpit? Should we give them the right hand of fellowship, so to speak, to use a biblical term? That appears to be what this elect lady did, which is why John wrote this letter. Apparently, her nephews and her nieces, who were Christians, came to John and said, this is what our aunt has done. To the contrary, no, we are not to receive them into our midst and give them the, the right hand of fellowship. John tells us, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And you might think, wow, that's really unloving. But let me ask you this. Is it really unloving to refuse to endorse or refuse to approve of something that would send people to hell for eternity. Can you really, with a straight face, tell me that that is unloving? To refuse to endorse or approve that. The truth is that to em- embrace or applaud or endorse sinful disobedience, false belief, or false teaching is the very epitome of hatred. It is the opposite of love. False belief is dangerous, dangerous stuff. Anyone who adds to or subtracts from the truth of the gospel message and or the truth of Christ must not be supported or endorsed or given the right hand of fellowship by the church, by those who walk in the truth. And that isn't unloving. To the contrary, it is the height, it is the height of true sacrificial love that is so concerned for the eternal destination of a person that one would confront and refuse to endorse them, refuse to applaud them, but instead to approach them and say, listen, this is why I can't endorse you. This is why I can't approve of you. That is the height of true love because it's self-sacrificial. You're putting everything on the line. That is self-sacrificial for the benefit of others, agape love. If we are to be a people who love and who walk in the truth of the gospel, it is sure, believe me, it is sure to bring controversy and conflict between Christians and the culture. It's going to happen. It's unavoidable. We, we, for the past 2,000 years, the church has kind of lived in this way, trying to avoid conflict a lot of the time with the culture. But we have to understand, you can't. You can't avoid conflict altogether. And yet we must see conflict with the culture as an opportunity to demonstrate true, biblical love, not by affirming what is false or sinful or rebellious toward God, but by gracefully correcting with the truth what is false. We must speak the truth in love to those who do not affirm or walk in the truth. The truth matters enough that we must speak it. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 24 to 26, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's a a picture of what we're called to do. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil. It sounds like he's describing the church in Ephesus in a sense, except the church in Ephesus was missing the love part. This is a picture of what we're called to do. Be kind. Be gentle. Be graceful. Listen patiently and correct with grace but hold the line hold the line do not compromise on the truth john concludes this brief letter writing in verses 12 and 13 he says though i have much to write to you i would rather not use paper and ink instead I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So John lets us know, and and lets her know, he's got a lot more to say. This isn't the end of what he has to say. But he has shared the burden of his heart in this brief letter. And notice, if you will, this is kind of neat. Notice, that while this elect lady seems to have made a tragic and very dangerous mistake, John has corrected her with a letter that is absolutely overflowing in grace, truth, and love. So you might say that this letter exemplifies the very thing that John is admonishing her to do. He's giving her a lesson in doing what she's supposed to do. She made a mistake. She's got some kids who aren't walking in the truth. It's very dangerous to bring a false teacher into their midst. It's very dangerous to bring a false teacher into the midst of people who do walk in the truth. She made a mistake. And John knows it. And he could have just come down on her. What are you doing? But no, he's graceful with her. He's loving with her. It's just overflowing in grace throughout this letter. In Jesus' prayer for his people, for us, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father saying this. He says, sanctify them, us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Friends, we are called to be a people who are sanctified in the truth of the gospel. The Father did not and will not deny Christ in answering this prayer. Those who affirm the truth and abide in the truth bear evidence of the fact that they belong to Christ because they are being sanctified in the truth. Those who don't abide in the truth... Don't bear evidence of the fact that they belong to Christ. We learn four very important principles that we see in this letter, both for our collective ministry as a church, which is very important, but also for our lives as individuals. Four truths know the truth, love the truth. Walk in or live out the truth and speak the truth in love. Remembering that without truth, love is gone. Love is powerless. True biblical love cannot exist apart from truth. We must speak it. We must live by it. We must believe it. That is what it looks like. That's what it means to be sanctified in the truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace That we find in it for living. We thank you for the instruction, for the admonishment, perhaps even for the rebuke. And we confess to you, Lord, that finding this balance between truth and love can be challenging for us. But we thank you that you give us the perfect example of this. And we thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us from the the realms of darkness by sending your Son, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life and to take our sin upon himself and to bear your wrath against our sin in order that we may be reconciled to you. Thank you for giving us this understanding of your son, that we may be redeemed by him, that we may be found in him and he abide in us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and for giving us peace with you. Teach us to be people who live for your glory in the truth and in obedience to your word.